You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. And then all, all I remember hearing from Brent when he had the uh, the drone over, I just heard in the background, he's just like, "Release it!" I'm like, "Okay, okay, we're getting the drone shot." So yeah, we got that shot. And for the next hour, we were all of us in this little pod, just harassing these fish with flies, trying to get get them to bite, and it was constant. I managed to, I think I hooked one more in there. I know Trevor was pestering on over and over in that same spot. And you could watch him just ahead of you, just doing loops. They were doing loops on that little shoal drop. Hmm. And yeah, it got to the point where it was, okay, these fish, they've, they've seen it all. We, we got to spread out. But that, that was my, my favorite moment of the trip for sure is when cool. me and Ryan had that double header. The excitement level was just, you know, through the roof, man. It was so cool. That was so fun. Com- comparably, it would be like when you when you encounter a school of coho in estuary and, you know, a few get caught and you can still see them. Yeah. <clears throat> they just shut off after uh, probably three or four were hooked. They were no more. We don't want anything to do with you guys. I think it's so funny the experiences that we all experienced because the best time of Mike's trip right there was probably Trevor's most frustrating time with me. <laughs> 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 Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Well, hello, Stillwater's Facebook page. Thanks for uh, for joining us tonight, guys. I'm Mark Hopley, host of the uh, Fly Fishing 97 podcast, and uh, stoked to be doing this. We're going to talk all things Stillwater. We're going to talk caribou fly fishing. We are going to talk about Wait For It Films, the movie Still by Brent Gill and the gang. And we got the whole gang here today. We've actually had all these guys on the podcast, so I'm kind of stoked, and I know... Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So four epic caribou region lakes. We're going to go right over the whole uh, filming of this inside and out and uh, behind the scenes. That's where we're going to go. So um, let's start with Brent Gill. Now, Brent, uh, he's going to join us now. He's a uh, scientific angler pro team, movie maker, video creator, graphic designer out of Douglas Lake, British Columbia, Canada. Brent. Good to see you. How are you? Hey, Mark. Hey, thanks for doing this, Mark. This is awesome. I am absolutely. Really yeah, man. Me too. I, I Thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it too. Um, so let's, um, we're going to get into everything and how you made this, this film. Um, what kind of brought you guys to the table? We're going to bring Phil Rowley in next. Um, Phil is out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, needs really no introduction, but I always run out of wind when I'm talking about you, Phil, because your resume is long. Author, competitive fly fisher, teacher, uh, Fly Fishing University, Stillwater's app, Flycraft Angling, uh, Stillwater Fly Fishing Store, video producer, and and that's probably I probably missed about thirteen or fourteen things there. Phil, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for having me. 
Awesome. Let's let's bring Ryan up next. Now, Ryan is out of Spruce Grove, Alberta. Ryan Ermit works on the Stillwaters app with Phil. Um, he uh, is Stillwaters, Alberta, Canadian Llama Pro Tire, avid fly fisher, and he's been quoted. He's been quoted. Ten shucks and three fish on the finder, or I'm not stopping. And he is well known for uh, his likeness for Pearl Jam and the Refusia. Ryan. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, great to be here. And uh, I'm not so sure how we're going to keep this straight with all these funny faces. But uh, <laughs> looking forward to this, Mark. Thanks a lot for being here. Good to see you, buds. Uh, next, we're going to head a little further north uh, to Prince George, British Columbia, Canada. We have got none other than Mike Green out of PG. Now, he's a scientific angler guy, log scaler by day, trophy trout hunter, uh, in the Caribou region, he he hooks up with a lot of fish in this area. We need to get uh, some the goods off this guy. Uh, and believe it or not, he hooked his first fly rod. And, and this is not not a lie. He caught a fly rod when he was an infant and has been throwing one ever since. Mike, how you doing tonight, man? Good, Mark. Good. Thanks for having me, dude. This is gonna be good. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. We're also yeah, just yeah. gonna head around the corner. Your good buddy oh. Trevor. We got Trevor Tatarchuk on the the program um he is out of prince george as well pro team hook and vice pro team chinook wind uh, outriver or sorry outfitters chinook wind outfitters um tie some scary scary chronomids and uh he's wearing three hats he's just telling me on the day job so hopefully you're gonna hit the water a lot this year trevor good to see you my friend so let's let's start that's the quietest that that's the quietest I've heard you. Let's let's start with Brent because Brent, you put this posse together, uh, I assume, um, and with your video creations. Why don't you walk us through a little bit how the movie still came to be and, and where it started for you guys? Thanks, Mark. Actually, um, I was the last one invited. <laughs> Come yeah. on. Yeah. I find that hard to believe. Oh, I was. Yeah. Oh. It was like there was one room left and they're going through their list and like who do we invite? And my name came up. Thanks, guys. That's <laughs> just joking. Yeah, no, I, I talked to Ryan and Phil about a trip that they were planning with Mike and Trevor. And um, you know, just so it's so challenging as you know to get that many people together to have the same week off of work. You know, none of us do this full time. So um, it all worked out that I could head up there when everyone else was heading up there and everywhere I go, especially when it comes to Stillwater, uh, related trips, I have all the camera equipment with me. So the plan was off the bat, which I actually, you know, put a, put a nail in my toe by making a kind of a poster for the idea of it before we, you know, even had a chance to see what it would be about, put a lot of pressure back on it. Cause there's a lot involved. It was about, um, you know, for the, so it'd be about five and a half days of filming. It was about just under a terabyte. It was, I think, about 900 gigs of footage over five cameras. So um, a lot of juggling and a lot of content, a lot of data management and stuff like that. But I did, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I was able to capture kind of each day, luckily. And I was, it was nice to be added to the roster and kind of come up with something like this. Uh, really, we just kind of, didn't have a plan going in. We didn't want it to be very um, um, generic. We wanted kind of more of that come along for the ride feeling. And I think we, I think we yeah. captured that. So. 
100%. That's one thing that I really found when I watched the movie for the first time, and I've probably seen it 10 or 12 times, uh, full disclosure. And wow. the one thing I would say, yeah, I'm that guy that keeps hitting like. No. Yeah. But you've had, how many downloads have you had on it so far, Brent? I haven't looked recently. I think it was around 7,000. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, I think, yeah, so if, you, if people want to find it, all you need to do is go onto YouTube, look up Wait For It Films Still. Um, Tell me about that capture, guys, in that, uh, Brent, I guess this is for you too, but the, the, the capture of that fish, the actual um, title page of the movie, where did you mm-hmm. get that? In the... Okay, so that's a fish being released um, underwater at a whole different trip, but it just made a good backdrop for yep. the poster, but it's an underwater GoPro, three feet under the water, sideways with a fish, just at its release that's swimming by. So Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Clearly. Phil, so so talk to me. You, you obviously spend a lot of time in, in the interior of British Columbia and in Alberta. When these guys reached out and said, hey, we want to chase some, some fins uh, in the caribou region, um, how long did it take you to think about that? Mm, 6.2 seconds. <laughs> Not long. Not long. Were a lot Not of these long. lakes new to you, Phil? Um, two were. Mm-hmm. And the other ones I had fished, before, two others I had fished before. I want to jump down to Mike Green on the bottom there. And the reason I want to do this, Mike, is because you know these waters inside and out. I know you live in Prince George, but you spend a lot of time uh, fishing the, the caribou region. So um, walk me through this, how it was teaming up with these guys on this on this journey. Well, I first heard about it when uh, when I was, I actually gave Ryan an email there about the half of Steelwater was selling them. And then he came back at me and asked if I wanted to do a shoot with Phil Rowley. And I was like, well, well, yeah, obviously. Right? That'd be that'd be a good time. I know, Phil, I know. You're pretty cool sometimes. And uh, <laughs> the next thing you know, I, I talked to Trev, and he's part of it, and then Brent's part of it, and then it just all came together great. So, yeah, and then me and Trev headed up from PG. Um, I know we only fished four lakes. Um, there was one lake on the list that was high on our list, though, and me and Trev fished it the Sunday when we rolled in. Um, but unfortunately that lake was like chalk and milk and it just wasn't coming together and, and you know we wanted to catch some fish so we had to knock that off the list but no the other uh four lakes they're they're all quality lakes man yeah no for sure so um let's walk us through this ryan how did you guys select these lakes now it seemed pretty evident in in the vid kind of how you came to do it but for those that may be about to download it um how did you pick the the waters you're hitting yeah well uh over beers and pizza that night, it was a roundtable discussion about, you know, where are we going to go? And, you know, a bunch of people thinking they're the smartest guy in the room trying to tell us what lake we're going to go to the next day. And there's just so many of them to try to figure out that it was you know, it was a battle. How, did, how do you figure out where to go? And, you know, we're looking at the calendars. We're looking at the weather forecast. It's got windy out, trying to figure out the, what the wind's going to do because – you know, you may have seen on the fourth, we were at a lake where we wanted perfect conditions for that lake based on weather conditions and tight fishing those fish. So um, we just decided at the end of the day to throw actually, I think, three, seven or eight names in this hat that I've got on my head now. And we drew the lakes and weather cooperated with, you know, how we drew them out of that hat. So um, the fish gods were with us, you know, as so to speak. And, um, I think there probably could have been, you know, 20 names in the hat mark. Yeah. You know, I don't know these looks like these guys do. It was a bucket list trip for me. 
Um, but there's so many good lakes around there and fortunate to fish four of them. I see we're having internet problems at the house of Trevor to charge. <laughs> he keeps disappearing. We'll, we'll bring him back in. Um, I did have a question for Trevor about his dragon patterns, but we'll get there. Um, maybe Brent, you can talk to um, us a little bit about the accommodations. So you guys obviously based out of uh, Williams Lake. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then so, so the bed and breakfast that you stayed at looked like a pretty nice spot. Yeah. So um, I, I believe, I think it was Brian and Trevor um, to, collectively. Right? Maybe it was more of Ryan. I'm not sure. I don't know who's going to get the points for that one. But there needs to be some points allocated on a trip like this. Uh, found an Airbnb in Williams Lake that worked out good. Um, it was I, I had to sleep. You know, the guy producing the show had to sleep on the floor in the living room. But everyone else had a nice bed. But, yeah, they found a nice place with a little kitchen, and, um, yeah, it worked out perfect. We were central, and, Good. you know, it, we went to McDonald's every morning and then headed out to the lakes, and uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> Right on. Phil's, Phil's doing, like... <laughs> what does this mean? I don't know. Uh, don't, Trev, you with us? supposed to eat McDonald's. His wife's like, Phil? Yeah, he's getting in shit right now. That's what's happening. Trevor, Trevor, I need I need you to talk to us about this dragonfly pattern because I know you caught some big fish when nobody was around to see it. Talk to me talk to me about this pattern that you were you were throwing. Uh I think you call it a greasy kind of slick dragon pattern. What what were you you fishing? Yeah, basically it's a, it's a darter uh invitation that I tie with uh, the product called Flyfer you get from uh, Chinook Wind Outfitters, so okay. uh, really easy tie, uh, neutrally buoyant, uh, mono eyes. There's nothing to it, you know. Some silly legs. Yeah, Phil, Phil's got go. some Thank there. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. And, okay. Uh, yeah, it happens. Okay, so um, yeah, it, it netted the it netted the biggest fish for me of the trip. Cool. Brent was there. He saw it. None of the other guys did. Well, it. it... It looked to me, Ryan, chime in on this. It looked like the average fish size in that region is pretty decent. Well, you know, you, you see my green post pictures. Do you think the average fish size in that region is 12 fucking pounds? <laughs> oh, excuse me. But, um, you know, but I, uh, seriously, I, I got to say the fish to average three. You know, yeah. they got to average, you know, three pounds easy. Yeah. Um, but there was some, I, I know Trevor, Mark and, and, uh, Mike, sorry, Mike and Phil, both, they, all three of them had fish in that seven to eight pound range. I know Brent got a big one that none of us saw that I actually didn't know about until I saw the film, which was, I mean, mm. it was pushing seven maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was some, I got one that was, you know, over six. So there was, there was some big fish caught that week for yeah. sure. Cool. So if you guys are just joining us on the uh, Stillwaters Facebook page, chime on in. You got some questions for these guys. I mean, how often do you get five of the top Stillwater fly fishers in the country and one on one vid? And I think you guys did an amazing job of capturing because I, I watch a lot of videos. And Brent, the way that this came together, I f- you feel like you're on the trip with you. And And some of those shots you got from the drones. Talk to me about that. Um, yeah, drone stuff is a big part of it, man. It can also mess up other people's footage. So you have to be cautious if you're dropping a bird over top of a boat that's filming that you don't fuck up their filming too, which can happen. But... <laughs> what, 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 what? Uh, oh, they're calling now. <laughs> oh, whose that... landline is ringing? 
That's the uh, that's the explicit that please. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, that's Ryan. It's Ryan's calling me. <laughs> what do you do, Ryan? Landline? How much is that thing? Twenty nine. Is that twenty nine bucks a month? It's an oh, iPhone yeah, two. A key with a lot of those lakes, Mark, is having mm-hmm. a polarized lens um, on your drone. So when you get over top of the boat and you pitch the camera straight down, you can cut through that water reflection on the surface and see the fish swimming and everything. So I'm always, I always have a drone on the floor of my boat with two batteries, three batteries ready to go. Yeah. Um, just to capture those shots. Because as you can see from the footage, it's still like those shots are, I mean, they, yeah. they ring out. Yeah. Mike, I was I was paying attention a lot to Mike because he was catching twice the amount of fish everyone else. So I'd I'd hang around Mike most of the time. Mike <laughs> was bending about three times more than most on average day. So I the flights were close, where it would only about, about five you know five hundred yards between me and everyone else, and about ten yards between me and Mike. So I could save battery throughout most of the day. Yeah, good stuff. They got some amazing shots. I want to throw something to Phil here. Uh, Phil, uh, we got a question here. Blobs, when, where, and how? And and maybe maybe let's talk specifically on this caribou trip. Were you guys fishing blobs much? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're muted, Phil. I had to mute because Ryan was calling me. Um, yes. <laughs> Right, like at least you used to sell, dude. Um, you never stop learning, buddy. You never stop learning. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. Um, oh sorry, here we go. On off the rails, it went. Um, no, anytime, but you know, we were using them in, in obviously because we were there in the fall, but typically when we're hanging them under indicators, I guess we are not necessarily using them in the, the way they were designed as an attractor, we're using them more to Im- suggest. Uh, zooplankton uh, okay. clumps of zooplankton yeah so we're we're picking colors that approximate the colors of the zooplankton and it, it was i think the rest of you guys could admit it was unseasonably warm um which was beautiful you know it was outstanding fishing and t-shirts all the time but at that time they're often coming out of deep water where they've been feeding on zooplankton a fair bit and then coming into the shallows to start uh you know actively feeding and they've got zooplankton on the mind so yeah. It always works. Here here in Alberta, Ryan and I, because we can fish two flies, yay, um, we often have, you know, a, a blob up above something else like a leech or a cron mid or something else. Works. Uh, it's a very good addition to any uh, team of flies. Good stuff. Um, color. Let's talk specifics. What color was working for you guys on this trip? Mike. Mike. Orange. Orange. We're catching anyone else. No, no, no. Come on now. No, no, no. Just the regulars, the orange, pinks, and reds and stuff, they seem to be good. Okay. Uh, we, we were getting them in three feet of water and even in 20, 20 feet of water. It didn't seem to matter. That's the, that's the thing about blobs. They just, they're greasy and you don't like to admit it sometimes, but they work when nothing else does. Well, and you had that throat pump, Mike. I, I think you showed it, Mike. You showed it in yeah. the video and it was, you know, Trevor touched on it earlier with that prawn color. You know, it's hard to beat in it. Yeah. If we threw, if we threw three or four prawn blobs in that vial with your zooplankton, pump, you wouldn't have been able to pick out which was which. So, 
Uh, you know, that, that prong color, and I know it's hot in the interior. Brian loves that color. Mr. Chan loves that color as well. So, I, and in here in Alberta, I think prawn has got to be one of the best blob colors out there, in my personal opinion. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I know. I've, I've had a few of my prawns be chewed up, and then I got to resort back to the orange, but no, it was awesome. Uh, Trevor, the key part about that week was, you know, um, all those four lakes had completely different water clarities. Hmm. And that yes, color seems to work so well um, for everybody, right? Periodically. Did uh, Ryan, did the refugia make an appearance on this trip? No, we didn't see too many coronamids. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it was late. It was in the fall. I did right. catch a fish one day. The only fish I caught was on a hog magnet, one of the hog magnets. Yep. Um, nice. I don't I don't know that any of us caught, you know, was that the only fish caught on a coronamid? I don't Trev was smoking about on the crony on our second lake. He was cranking them out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Trevor, what? Because we all kind of strayed off the crony, and and Trev stayed on the whole day, and it was just constant, and we we started to keep crowding around Trevor. What's going on here, man? He's like like a magnet. Trevor, what what color crony was working for you on that day? Uh, black and silver and uh, anti-static bag, just a black anti-static bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, it seemed like you were yeah. on the camera a lot because every time I, I I see Phil with a fish and you filming, it seemed to be kind of a a thing you guys had going there. That's just well, normal. That's, that's kind of how it all, and Brent wasn't joking when he said he was last to the party. Um, you know, Phil and I do a quite a bit of filming together for his YouTube channel, and we had this idea to go up to the Caribou and film for his YouTube channel with Mike and Trevor. And um, at the last minute, we decided, you know, we all love Brent's work, and Brent was able to get the time and come, and he said he was just going to shoot behind the scenes and have no agenda, and, you know, that's what Brent's talking about. Sometimes the drones up above or the birds can, uh, can cause some other footage to go astray because... Um, but yeah, so I was, we were filming for Phil's YouTube channel and, there, and there'll be some, some, uh, some more dropped, it's being worked on and edited right now. So good stuff. That's, you know, if Phil and I are fishing together, if somebody's fighting a fish, the other guys on the camera, that's pretty much how we roll steady. Right. Craig McDonald has a question for you specifically, Ryan. Uh, speaking of greasy, <laughs> how long before Ryan asked to dangle asking for a friend? So were you dangling on this? It was the fourth, it was the fourth day I finally got to dangle. No, you liar, liar, yeah. liar. You dangled on the first day because a <laughs> local guy came by and said at some point earlier in the season he was marking fish at 40 feet, and, and you were going crazy in the boat. You had to dangle. You couldn't get that Type 7 rigged up fast enough. It was, they didn't give me any time to do it. I hardly got it to the bottom. I only really had a true chance to get it down on the fourth day, and that's only because the drop-off of the shoal was so steep that Phil could reach the shoal, and I could still dangle in 35. But uh, it wasn't productive, Craig, and, uh, and all my friends bug me about how addicted I am to dangling lately. But The dangler. It I, created, I created a monster. I never. I shouldn't have shown you I'm the lean. It works. Well, you get to eat your lunch and fish at the same time. You like that. Always. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah. Mr. Gill, I got a question for you, man, that I, oh, I'm, I it's, 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 it's been bugging me for a while. So 
knowing how much time you spend with the drones, how much time you spend filming this, how much actual time do you get to fish? Because I know it's really important to you to capture this. So yeah. talk to me about well, that. Well, you got to remember too, like we everybody, everybody here and everybody watching knows when something's happening, it's usually a short period when it's explosive, right? You know, I, I think, I don't know, I wouldn't know the stats, but it's got to be three or four fish that peak, that peak part of the emergence or whatever's going on. So um, I got caught once trying to chase some fish on the last lake site fishing when Mike started, and Mike and Ryan started hooking up in a, in a deep bowl and I was on the other end of the lake and I could fly over there and got one of the best scenes from the whole thing. But I probably fished 10% of the time and more in between when things were happening, like when guy, when Trevor would hook up or when Phil would hook up or Mike, that would be what I wanted to be set up for because a lot of the best stuff happens in the first, geez, 30, 40 seconds. And then the rest of it's usually that generic kind of fish yeah. halfway out of the water getting scooped. So about 10 percent of the time you know yeah. fairly and the the key is is making sure that the lighting is right and concentrating on who looks like they're going to be the one catching next and you know I've, it's always fun to poke at everyone but everyone was catching fish at different times but spread out yeah. so it, it's super tricky you got to kind of pick your battle and hope that you're near the boat that's hooking up at the at that time yeah good point mike um you spent a lot of time in the in that region in the caribou region chasing fish on still water what did what did it look like the roads took a turn for the worst towards the end of the trip it looked a little looked a little soggy going in there actually you know that that road into that lake that was the dry time of it wow if you go to that lake at any time when it's like wet it's kind of just pin it and hope for the best there it's terrible i remember i the first time i went in there it was thanksgiving weekend and my old truck i was sideways in the ruts just four-wheel drive pin in it and i was just like hold on but yeah i know that was actually dry for that wow. time of year it was it was nice and we definitely thought about it we're like well we're gonna go into this lake i mean the weather's been great dry this is it should be okay yeah what was the time frame on this trip guys trevor it was obviously in the fall and four four days four or five days what was what was the exact date on the calendar you guys were in there Jesus, you're putting me on the Well, spot. roughly. I mean, May 4 was October 1st. I remember that. September, October. <laughs> he can't remember last week. Sorry. I, uh... The guys helped me out. I can't remember. Uh, Day 4 was October 1. That's all I remember. Yeah. Uh, End okay. of September, early October. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so I want to I want to go around. Yeah, there you go. I want to go around the Brady Bunch here, starting Phil in the top left, and let's just go around. Um clockwise what was your single like if you were to pick one pattern that you were reaching for more often than not on this trip and i, I realize you're fishing four different lakes but what was your go-to pattern phil um on the last you know it was a it was like brent said it was sort of different every day yeah um last day it was my uh, baby leech with a hot orange bead yeah um on the sec third day, it was a good old stillwater nymph because we were getting fish right in tight to the shallows and blobs. So it really wasn't consistent. We had a bit of a, like Trevor mentioned, a chronomid emergence on the second day. Um, got a few takes. On it. We even got some back swimmer, uh, especially the last day. We had back swimmers coming down every oh, year. And I, I got one hookup. That was it. 
Um, it was I, I, Ryan and I thought it might have been about three fish, just all laughing their asses off as they drove around in, in a little circle with us t- chasing them all over the place. Because um, you see all those rises, but you're not always convinced that's the same number of fish as the rises. It could be two or three working, but yeah. they were big enough swirls that we were in. Yeah, I, I love talking patterns. Um, Brent, what about yourself? What was your go-to on this on this trip? Oh, I fished scuds pr- pretty much the whole trip. Um, which was 10% of the fishing time. I just stuck to scuds and, and actual darners, large dragons, just in case. So if I did have a hookup, the chances might be a bigger one to get close-ups on. But yeah, I think I caught two fish the whole trip. Well, you were probably only fishing for five minutes, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of dinking around to get underwater shots and stuff, too, and, yeah. and B-roll and all that. Yeah, it, yeah. it's more about making sure I'm set up when someone's going to hook up. Yeah, for sure. Taking a sack. So mostly scuds and darners. Just, yeah. The darner was on a type six, a floating darner just for that. We all know why. Right. Uh, Ryan, what about you? What was kind of your, your takeaway on this trip? Uh, fly pattern wise, if you had to pick one. Well, the fourth day was the booby that saved my ass. Uh, the booby on about 22 feet on the type seven, you know, four foot leader. Um, that's probably my biggest wish of the trip. The second day, it was, it was all about the, it was all about the shrimp. You know, I, I fished them hard when we were in the shallows and in the weeds. And um, mm. other than that, I'd have to say like a balanced bruise. Phil's balanced bruise leech was really good. You yeah. know, for both Phil and I on the on that trip. So, and and I, will, I won't steal Mike Hunter, but he did, he had some good luck on leeches too. So, before we move over to Mike here. Um, did is your dad talking to you since you stole that moose tenderloin? Is that did, did you did you get uh, over that? We didn't, we didn't even get a moose tag this year, and he still loves me. So hey, <laughs> I guess he's just happy I gave my shout out in a film. I don't know. Hey, we can take care of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mike. Um, talk to me. What 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 were you throwing? So when you opened that fly box, more often than not, you were reaching for what? Well, I was kind of getting out of being lazy on this trip because I knew the pressure was on and the cameras were rolling. And I was, I, I, I fished harder than I've ever fished in my life during those four days. It was constant, no just sitting and watching an indicator. Either I had an indicator one way or I had a, you know, an intermediate or a sink line. I was going scuds, chronomids, blobs, uh, leeches on the last day when we got our nice fish on those, uh, when I was sitting beside Ryan and Phil there, not sure this, uh, this one always, always produces. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's money. A- anywhere I go, man, that thing rips. And even in, I didn't think too, in that super clear water. Yeah. What's the body, it, what's it, the body it, on that? Mike, what, what is that? Is that seal for dubbing or what is that? That's uh it's Monaire larva lace. Okay. I forgot the, ex- I forget yeah. the exact color, okay. but it's kind of a, it's kind of a brown purple blend. Yep. Good stuff. Hey, can I for a sec? Yeah. Hey, everybody, see on the bottom of your screen, there's that mic button. Mm-hmm. See how we can mute ourselves? I think because I can hear a lot of popping. It's because yeah. it sticks different audio streams at once. If we all mute ourselves, and then when we are talking to yeah. mute ourselves, I think it'll the the viewers and listeners may thank us for that. So just a yeah. little yeah. heads up. Oh, that's sweet. Thanks, Brent. I yeah. noticed the difference already. Okay, uh, Trevor, uh, talk to us. What were you? Uh, what were you throwing? 
Oh man. Well, I, I didn't have one go-to fly. That's for sure. As all the boys are saying, you know, every lake, uh, was a different day, uh, different water. Um, but primarily if I had to narrow it down to a few, I mean, clearly chronomids, uh, you know, I was working those pretty hard and had a lot of luck on chronomids, uh, big greasy dragonflies, damselflies and scuds. I would say yeah. that's what I was fishing. I, I didn't really have leeches on a lot of the time. Yeah. I really didn't. Okay. I stuck to those patterns. Fair comment. Uh, Brent, uh, we got a question here, uh, specifically that you could probably answer for us. Um, do you shoot with an underwater drone? I didn't even know there was such a thing. They do. They do make them. Um, they're they're fairly new, but they have a long cord with them. Like they have a reel up cord that runs to it for power and to um, direct it. No, but I, I'd like one. Um, a lot of that cool 50-50 stuff that you saw um, with the the release shots. There's a real iconic one with Trevor putting one back on day two. That's with a bubble, like a dome, and it's a GoPro that fits in a dome, so you can line it up so you can see above the uh, water, the angler, and below. But no, that's not with a uh, an underwater drone yet. <laughs> so we're talking tonight with the cast of characters from the movie Still. Uh, wait for it, films. Check it out on YouTube. It'll it'll basically make you want to go fishing pretty bad. And uh, I think really captures the essence of, of, of what we're all doing here uh, when it comes to still water fly fishing. Um, Phil, I want to ask you this question. Maybe we can move around the room a bit on this, but this is something that comes up a lot on the podcast, and it's something that I think about a lot. So when you are in, in the caribou region, you've got lots of different strains of fish. And I noticed when you guys were hitting these different lakes, the one the one day it looked like you had some Fraser Valleys, another day you're on Panas, maybe some Blackwaters. How much do you have to change what you're doing to the strain of rainbow trout you're targeting? Um, I, I to be honest, I don't change much um, because you know where we have in Alberta, we've got not only rainbows, we got browns, we got tigers. Um, cutthroat and we fish them all the same um you know mm -hmm. look for good habitat you know figure out what the food sources are and just go at them so i don't think anybody really changed their approach on the trip we were on that that uh, ryan and i saw because we were always in the same boat wondering what the hell mike was doing and uh <laughs> um <laughs> and um you know, you'd change flies up just to make a change or just change a presentation. But I don't think any, you know, uh, Mike and Trevor and yeah. Brent and everyone else can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah. I don't think they were, you know, had a, you know, a Fraser Valley box and a Panask box. And, right. and I can't remember the other strain we were playing with there, the mm. um, horsefly strain as right. well. Um, I don't think anybody really made any serious changes uh, based on that. The reason I ask that is that I find sometimes when you're throwing a blob or something real flashy, those phrasers are just like, where is it? Where is it? Um, Brent, any thoughts on that? Strains mean anything to you when you're out there? Um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where I work, I get to fish a different, few different types. But it, the only thing I, I, I notice is that some of them um, come in shallower a little earlier than others in the spring. And uh so the lakes that I do target that have, um, and I noticed that with black waters, they seem to be a little bit closer in, a little earlier in, mm -hmm. but no, not much of a technique difference. I think I'm just so 
trying to stay so aware of what's hatching and what's going on that day, not really concentrating on as much as the strain of yeah. fish that I'm targeting. But there is definitely an approach early on for which ones are where okay. that late. Yeah, you bet. Ryan, any uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I'm probably the least, um, you know, the, to answer this question. I, I remember the boys talking about the horseflies being pretty aggressive. So, you know, um, that can be, um, that could be something if, you know, you're fishing those blobs and those kind of things. But no, I, I think, you know, where it's, it's it's about the food sources that of the water systems that they're living in and and what they're eating and yeah. it has to do with what the species that they are or the strain that they are but the water and the habitat that they're living in and okay. um what that what that still water is producing for a food source so yeah i, I don't think you know it's it's more about what's in the throat pump than the strain of the fish <laughs> that's a good that's quotable right there uh mike somebody just said the the fish find a, a home in your boat which i i have no doubt uh, as somebody who spends a lot of time in the caribou area, any thoughts on, on strains? Well, I, it might just be me, but I know when I say I go out on black waters, if I know a lake's holding big black waters, I'll usually first bust out the sink line, you know, run the dragons, gumfist or the leeches. Hmm. I go for more for the meat and potatoes, you know, or if it's like a panask or something. Yeah. Then I'm thinking chronomid scuds, more of the small guys, but all strains, they'll all eat the same stuff anyway. And like you said, Mark, the uh, the Fraser's blobs, it's just you, you toss a blob and they're on them, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've, that's been my experience, but I don't, I don't, could be just the waters I'm fishing. Trevor, Trevor what about you? Sorry. Tre- no, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Trevor. What about you, Trev? Yeah, I'd echo Mike's comments there. Really, I don't care too much about the strains, but with the black waters, again, I will. I find them to be very predatory, and they like to focus on big meaty bugs and that's when i know i'm in a blackwater lake um my go-to dragonfly leeches i will always start with that of course if i see a crony hatch i mean i'm going full out on crons so yeah um but that would be really the only strain uh for me fishing that region um where i'll really try to target something specific yeah. uh, with the, with those types of patterns so. I noticed you guys on, on day four, you kind of hit a different body of water. So the first three days, it, it, when I saw that lake on day four, I wanted to be there. And I'm looking at those potholes and just that clear water. Phil, maybe you can speak to this. Did you have to change up your game a little bit when you started hitting those, you know, those shallow kind of moral bottoms and then those, those it looked like lagoons there. It looked beautiful. Yeah. I bring, Brent really captured that really well. Yeah, it's... Uh... Well, Brent and bonefish, right, Brent? <laughs> yeah, crystal clear water. Um, you know, I was still a little car sick from having to drive in there with a blindfold on. So, um... <laughs> just for the record, yeah. we all got to pick a few names, and I picked that was the one I wrote and put in the hat, right, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. So it was. Um, you know, I couldn't. I still can't believe I got. I still can't believe I, Ryan and I got that marlin in there on a trailer and lower. We launched that thing down a forty-five foot embankment, recovered it that way. Not quite the way Brent recovers his boats, the beluga, the white beluga, his boat. But, uh, but back to your question, um, you know, it's um, you got to be a. If it's flat calm, they're tough because they're they're very aware of their surroundings. Any kind of casting mistake, uh, and you put a wake out, you know, if you start casting kind of crazy, 
Um, you probably got to downsize to tip it a little bit. And, and with no wind on the water, they're kind of, they cruise randomly. Usually if there's a breeze, it kind of, they want to swim into that current it creates. But when it's flat, calm, they kind of meander. And, and you know, I've, I uh, brought my drone along after Brent Gill's drone lesson class. You know, here's how to take it off. We'll deal with landing it later. Um, and, uh, yeah, laugh away, Brent. <laughs> I think I think we should dig into this because I know that we had no. a brief – come on, come on, Phil. Okay. We had a brief okay. conversation about – Drone 101. These things are great when because when you launch them, they take GPS coordinates of where you are. And it, they have this amazing feature called Go Home. So when you're into trouble or low batteries, they're going to go exactly back to where you were, literally to the lat and long. But at one point, Phil had pulled his anchors. So, No, you said to me, let's be truthful here. So I launched the thing out of my boat trouble, and I'm Ryan, flying Ryan, around. Ryan I got, you know, I got some, you know, I was happy with the footage. Ryan and I were having fun. And then Trevor, uh, sorry, uh, Brent sort of screams across the lake. You probably don't want to land that thing in your boat. And I'm like, oh, that would have been nice to know before I took it off. So he said, you probably want to go ashore. And then the thing's beeping away like it's going to come down imminently. And, of course, by that point, I'm moving the boat to shore and trying not to step on Ryan's rod as I get out of the boat and yeah. all that stuff. We recovered it, but it would have been nice to know. So the next day I put it up, the last day I put it up, we stayed on shore, droned around. I've got um, some footage that you'll see when I get uh, our vlog done of Brent tying his fly on while his fish is rooting within a cast length of his boat. It was cool because you could see them nose down uh, rooting uh, along, and there's lots of case caddis tracks, like little meandering tracks all over the place. They're probably rooting scuds out of there too, and the odd dragonfly nymph they run across. So it was cool to see them just like a bonefish, nose down. People always say trout don't tip up to feed. Yeah. You know, I, I, They probably prefer to feed at their level or come up a little bit, but they're quite capable of putting that nose down and just you know leaving a little mar little look like a little marl trail where they've been rooting through it was it was really cool to sit and watch and we had mm -hmm. one ryan was casting to a fish and you know by the time he, he got the first cast out i think it came over and had a look didn't it ryan and then and then it it swam towards us and we just sort of froze in the boat and this fish literally good sized at least four plus pounds just cruises right by the boat you know yeah. didn't give us Mark, the uh, idea with that lake was we we knew that we had a you know a, a good story going with angling some different lakes but to fulfill the trip and the caribou we wanted to try and capture and there's dozens and dozens of great sight fishing lakes up there we wanted to try and capture you know a sight caught fish right like there he is present to him fish turns takes and we didn't and we weren't able to capture that I think it was hard. just my boat alone, not counting for everyone, we probably saw in total at least 100 cruisers that day, all of which I believe other than one Mike got at the end were taken on, on a, under the sight fishing scenario. The rest were fishing into the darker water, but we casted to easily three dozen cruisers and none, I mean, they would turn and look at them. They'd get within a few feet and then leave you a little dust cloud as they would take off so yeah um it was interesting how many fish you see but how many do not get hooked up in that scenario humbling right? ryan yeah. you, you fish a lot of these clear waters ryan uh, in alberta i know you do um talk to us a little bit about the, the presentation when you're dealing with crystal clear water it, it, it does change things 
Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I don't typically have the opportunity to, to fish, you know, shallow in the shoal site fishing for the one place like we were here, but, you know, we use longer leaders and uh, try to get our flies a little bit further away from our fly lines. We'll, we'll stage them down in two or three kind of tippet length or different tippet um, X's or thicknesses in order to, or, or go with smaller ones. You know, in lots of occasions we won't use a, um, a tapered leader at all and just go straight floral right off of our fly lines if need to in these clear water. So, you know, and, but that doesn't work if you're casting that fish because, you know, you got to have that delicate presentation. So it's different when you're fishing them deep, but in clear waters or if you're casting it them shallow. But when we talk about humbling, I, I, I must have casted a 24 fish easy myself that day. And they'd come and look, or they wouldn't look at all, or, you know, you'd mess up a little bit, and they'd be gone right away. And I caught one fish that day, and it was in 22 feet of water on a booby on a type 6 with 4 feet, a 5-pound leader, you know. So um, it just goes to show, you know, we could have spent all day casting at fish because they were there, and maybe we should have been in 25 feet, you know. So yeah. be there and to have that experience at casting at even when they take a look, that that goes through you and that fish turns and he cocks and it looks like he's going to take it even when they don't take it it almost feels just as good you know so um it was, it was a special special experience for sure sure mike why don't you chime in on this um how did you change your game for day four well I was, i've been at like just once actually if i was there for a weekend and i just knew from being there it's usually my experience was super clear you know, sight fishing lakes, as much as they're nice to be on, I, it is a challenge because the fish are so spooky. I remember when we, when we all first launched out, I remember Trevor was ahead of me there. Brent got a head start before we all head out and he was looking and Trevor's casting and me and Trevor kind of hanging beside each other and we're casting these fish and that's the same thing what, you know, uh, Ryan and Brent were saying, they come up and then they just do a 180 and, you know, go the other way. So you change your fly, it'd be the same thing. And you could even bump them on the head and they're just not into it. Yeah, and like um, like Ryan was saying, it took so long before anybody actually hooked up. It had to be at least in the afternoon, maybe one or seven o'clock. And at that time, you know, we're all just chilling. I think Brent was in the other side of the lake cruising, doing his thing. And Ryan hooks up on the booby, and I'm I'm sitting there, you know, driving around, and I got my rod in my holder at this point, just kind of cruising. Ryan hooks up, I'm like, holy, we got a fish, right? And then I look down and my rod just starts screaming, like just wailing. And we had a double header, like that was just wild. So Ryan lands his, I land mine, you know, we're all yelling at Brent, our radios aren't working, we can't hear nothing. And then all, all I remember hearing from Brent when he had the uh, the drone over, I just heard in the background, he's just like, release it. I'm like, okay, okay, we're getting the drone shot. So yeah, we got that shot. And for the next hour, we were all of us in this little pod just harassing these fish with flies trying to get get them to bite and it was constant i managed to i think i hooked one more in there i know trevor was pestering them over and over in that same spot and you could watch them just ahead of you just doing loops they were doing loops on that little stroll drop hmm. and yeah it got to the point where it was okay these fish they've, they've seen it all we we got to spread out but that that was my my favorite moment of the trip for sure is when cool. me and ryan had that double header the excitement level was just, you know, through the roof, man. It was so cool. That was so fun. Com comparably, it would be like when you when you encounter a school of coho in an estuary, and you know, a few get caught, and then you can still see them. 
Yeah. <clears throat> they just shut off after uh, probably three or four were hooked. They were no more. We don't want anything to do with you guys. I think it's so funny the experiences that we all experienced because the best time of Mike's trip right there was probably Trevor's most frustrating time with you. <laughs> 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 yeah. Hey, we have a question, guys. Um, uh, let's start the. Uh, well, let's go uh, before we get to the question. Sorry, Trev. Let's go to you first. Did you change up any tactics on the clear water? On the clear water, uh, not really. Uh, overall, I, I I didn't. I was chucking everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hooked up with two fish that day, and they unbuttoned themselves. So, I mean, it it is what it is, right? So yeah. that's that's how she goes. But that is definitely a humbling lake. Um, it was tough fishing. So, yeah, beautiful water. I'd say though. we were dialed in on 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 anything. You can't say we were dialed in on anything. I yeah. mean. Well, that's when you let's got. Not forget, let's not forget, ten hours in the water turned out to be forty-five seconds of video. <laughs> right, that's well put. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Isn't it? Why don't we? Uh, let's throw this the question. The best part was that big moose. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that was a beauty. Yeah. Yeah. There's a nice bear was, too. Yeah. You captured guys. Um, black bear. Yeah. yeah. That that swam right behind Ryan and Ryan. Yeah. The, our boat, right, Ryan. <laughs> Has anyone seen any fish eat uh, yeah. shell bugs before? So um, my buddy and I were once on a lake and we were catching fish and the belly of the fish was really lumpy. Yeah, seen that too. Uh, we couldn't identify the bug that was on the water. Weird. I have a hunch I know what's going on. Phil, uh, chime in on this. What do you think it is? Snails. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. They, they eat them about maybe the size of your pinky nail because they can, you know, they got to pass those things. Um, and you can usually tell because they're crunchy. They feel like a little trout maraca. And uh, I got to be. How do I say this? Their their back door is a little red and swollen, as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But they will eat other hards, like uh, you know, ants can be you know considered a hard uh, exoskeleton on them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in Alberta, Ryan and I have seen them eating those giant predaceous water beetles, about yeah. the size of your thumb. That's something to watch a fish barf up a couple of those in your landing net, and you're like, yikes, because yeah. they're a, a nasty little bug, too. And they, they fall out of the sky in the fall just like boatmen and backstormers. So it's like you're being bombarded with pebbles when they start crashing down. It's a little weird. Yeah, I, I've seen that, too, guys, like just shells, like uh, snails. And they're, they're all, you can almost hear the fish when they jump. Like I was on one lake in particular. They were just full, and you could feel them when you, when you felt the fish. It just was bumpy and weird. But um, stink bugs, I used to call them that, but northern conifer seed bugs. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but they blow out of the trees, out of the uh, ponderosas. Man, that you seen that, Brent? They'll, they'll hit them hard. Is it? I'm gonna read this comment out because this is exciting too. Is it better to fish a booby on a sinking line with a short leader or a floating line, Mike? Well, I don't. I don't fish boobies <laughs> too often. But when I, when, <laughs> well, I, in my experience, I know I, I would have to say sinking line. It's just you know get a heavy sink line, type six, whatever, type seven, whatever you got. And nice thing about and always a short leader, I find the best four to six feet. And I usually stick to at least about six to eight pound floral. Nice thing is you can get it down to the bottom, and then you know it's not too far off the bottom with your the booby will float, so you can just whack that thing, and it's not going to hit the bottom. Um, I haven't done it on a floating line. I can't say it wouldn't work. You know, you could probably strip it on top to some hungry fish. I'm sure it would work, but in my experience, it's definitely the sink line, sink line tactic. 
Yeah, we've used them because um, we can fish multiple flies in Alberta. So we will fish boobies on slow sinkers and floating lines uh, in a combination with other flies to because the booby awake, which as Mike talked to, will bring fish up, especially if they're chasing minnows. And you know they'll come up and either eat that fly or you know uh, eat the other fly um, above it. Um, you know because it's kind of pulling horizontally. So you certainly can use them on. But most people fish them deep, I think. Right, guys. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the booby, you could call the booby greasy at the best of times, but if you're fishing it with another fly and what we call the washing technique, it doesn't get much greasier than that. I think it adds a layer of grease. Um, yeah. But I think, I think, uh, I think it's important what Mike said is that, you know, you strip them fast because the trout do inhale the boobies or the blobs and, yeah. you, can, and you can really hurt fish if you're not stripping them fast enough. So, I really try to push people to strip them quicker than you think because that'll help you cook them in the lip because if you're leaving them out there for them to take it, I mean, their butts aren't sore because of shells at that point, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's, that's why I don't like to fish boobies too much. Yeah, no more, I, yeah again, I would agree with that you also. got a whale. It, I haven't had a problem with the blobs, though. I'm not sure if you guys have with the swallowing of them, but I haven't had any problem with fish swallowing blobs. No, not like the booby. They do inhale the booby, though. I get that. I hear that a lot, but, uh, you know, guys they call the boobies greasy, right? And, oh, they, they damage the fish and whatnot. But uh, they're the same guys that are fish and dragonfly, you know, a gomphus, right, which is a deer here. It's the same thing. It's a floating pattern, right? Your, your uh, sinking line, four-foot leader, keep tight to the line, strip strip this thing in. Like you say, if you're going to let it and, and, and not be tight to the line, it's going to swallow the fly. You're going to deep hook it, right? So it's all about keeping tight to the line. I think they're, they're no more greasy than, than a deer hair gonfus, I'll tell yep. you. I think that could come in terms, too, with the size of the shank you're hooked to. Because I know boobies generally are quite small, so it's just like a ball ball of shit. Where, I mean, for when I try my gonfus, it's on quite a long shank. So I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure a short shank gonfus, I guess, would be the same thing. Right, but I see where you're coming from for sure. Yeah. No, I, I also, believe Trevor. Let's because, face it, sorry, let's face it too. When those original colors came out with the boobies, that was the big shock. Yeah. If they were dark green or brown when exactly. the first patterns were starting to emerge, yeah. people would have been fine with it, myself included. But it was those. Yeah. For, those were the first real good look at you know chartreuse and pink yeah. and fire orange on patterns. Yeah. That's what was. I think that's where the word grease probably yeah. emerged. Grease, well, yeah, yeah. not a traditional fly, but I echo, yeah, okay. I echo Trevor's um, <laughs> comments. Is you know, because I've seen fish eat a, a halfback, and if there's any kind of slack, you know, let's. I had an issue once where I uh, was fishing lock style and got a tangle, and um, you know, was dealing with the tangle. So my flies just sort of falling through the water. As I got the tangle addressed, I started stripping and fish on oh this is great and i get them in that fly is unfortunately down its throat and i really believe in any fly situation you lose contact that fish samples it feels no resistance its instinctive reaction is to swallow it right and of course because of the buoyancy and a gomphus a booby you know even when we fish blobs on droppers which i talked about earlier um if you've got too long a dropper and have an unweighted blob you're using the rest of the rig to drag everything down they will take them deeply as well. So, you know, mm. when Ryan and I are fishing, 
in Alberta, we're fishing tungsten bead blobs on short droppers if we're doing that to stay as tight as we can to the fly when we're hanging them under an indicator. You know, so yeah, yeah, definitely. It's I, I, I seriously think it's I definitely believe rather it's it's slacking the lines. We got a comment here, guys. Maybe Brent, you can chime in on this because I do find this kind of interesting. Um, somebody said that you showed up at Crater Crater Lake to stock some fish and actually personally witnessed some big trout move in and start eating the four to five inch newly stocked fish. Have you yeah. seen that? All the time. Um, hmm. Every year, um, I've been bucket stocking for the last eight years, and if it's calm. And if there isn't a lot of um, forward wind or any wind and it's clear and we start dropping in fish this size and they, they're, you know, they're coming out of a truck with, and before that they're coming out of a pen where they're raised. So they tend to school up heavily and it must cast a shadow or vibrate over the shoals. And soon enough, the big boys are there yeah. and they'll chase them. And I've, yeah, I've watched fish eat six or seven premature, you know, wow. Uh, maybe three inch rainbows and then they'll take off and then i'm back the next day with extra large zonkers (laughs) that's got to be a little disheartening (laughs) a little disheartening when you're you're paying for fish the biggest one i saw was a couple years ago a real small exploratory lake i'm really fortunate with my job to to do some of that Um, we put 500 fish a a bucket load of small fish and i had um, seen any fish survive in that lake and the bucket went in and there was three five pounders on that shoal within minutes, hmm. hitting most of those stock eat fish. We almost lost the whole stock on that. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> rainbows eat rainbows. Are you mixing up? I'm curious on the strains yeah. that you're stocking there, Brent. Yeah. What What are you stocking, or can you say? Um, they come out a little for it. So okay. Um, yep. There, there are there are panace cross. Um, okay. And I think over time, some of the some of the uh, fish take on completely different uh, appearances depending on which water they go into. But they're, a pin, I would say they're fifty percent Penasque and fifty percent Fraser. Yeah, good stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to get back to the trip because obviously you guys you guys look like you really connected on this trip and had a heck of a lot of fun. And you could tell there's a lot of good banter. Uh, looked like a lot of card playing, a lot of beer drinking. Um, who's Who's the best cook? Who's the chef of the group? Uh, Ryan, who would you point to as... as <laughs> Mike's got it figured out. Ryan, who, who who's the best chef in the group? Well, I actually think that, you know, I'd, Trevor T's probably got it dialed when it comes to the barbecue and the smoker and those kind of things. If you, you know, he's he doesn't just tie amazing flies. He chefs some good meat. But um, as hard as we tried, we, we didn't have a barbecue this trip uh, at the house so right um we got the cast iron pan out and we did what we could uh in the oven and i think trevor did a pretty good job one night on some ribs and uh i think the tenderloins were cooked to perfection so you know i think we we did most of the trevor and i did the cooking and well mike did a really good job too because uh you know he ran to the pizza spot a couple of times so <laughs> mike mike uh, mike chipped in too and it came to dinners but Hey man, the pizza's always great. Come on, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pizzas and skid bags. Mike was on it. <laughs> <laughs> skid bags made it into the broadcast. What, 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 what's that, right? Define, please. Oh, define. Please explain to our viewers what a skid bag oh, is. God. I think we're gonna leave that one alone for this oh, time. But um, 
<laughs> yeah, I think the, there was a really good pizza spot right around the corner that we we capitalized on when we got home late and we're hungry and didn't feel like cooking. And the AeroPress coffees were uh, were important in the morning. And then other than that, not money did cooking in the morning. So, you know. Mike, Brian, don't sell yourself short. Those, those moose better. tenderloins were pretty cool. Mike. Trevor should give up his secret about how he orders pizza, too. Oh, here we go. Oh, well done, well done. my friends. Well, well done. done. Well done. <laughs> well done pizzas. First time I've ever had a well done pizza. Yeah. Mike, Mike, Mike Green, who was who is the messiest person on this trip, guys? Who who was the person you always had to pick up after? Oh shit, I don't know. I think we're all equally messy. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. No, I was the mother. No, I was the yeah, only part in the crowd. Are, I, I had to clean all the empties off the counter so we could actually make press coffee in the morning. Do hey, the dishes. These guys were like little kids. Just drop it when they're finished with it. Move yeah. on to something else. Yeah, crack the next beer. I think I might have. I might have hit a. Reason that we call them filthy. <laughs> yeah. Suffice it to say, we were able to almost pay off our food debt with empties. So perfect. Perfect. Thanks to Jasper Brewing. Thanks, Jasper. Yeah. Well, you know what? You brought up a good yeah. point, Phil, because we should thank the guys at uh, Fish and BC, Jasper Brewing, Canadian Llama, uh, Chinook Wind Outfitters. Um, they really stepped up, helped you guys on this trip. And that begs a question. Part two, Brent? Oh, I don't know. I was invited last minute, so maybe you should ask. You, you got the drone, though. Phil. Phil. <laughs> yeah, I think we might, you know, it's it's possible, you know, maybe a summer doldrums edition or you know. the dragon edition, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think there's a number of things to work through, but you know what's important about this is the sponsors and you know we couldn't have done it without Fish and BC. We couldn't have done it without Kenta Canadian Lama and Amanda Canadian Lama. Yeah. We couldn't have done it without you know, uh, and the boys at Jasper Brewing in Alberta that hooked us up, and you know they they made this trip possible for us, and our sponsors were key. And you know I want to take this opportunity to really key in and thank them. Um, whether there's a number two or not, I think that'll depend on a number of things. But um, right now, I think we can certainly concentrate on the sponsors that help make number one possible. Yeah, hundred percent. Well said. Well, thank said. you everyone for that. Yeah, tricky part too is is just. Not sorry, not part two. A tricky part two is also getting that many people together that all work and having you know being able to book the same time off. And we were so fortunate on this shoot for the weather. I mean, and for me being behind cameras the whole time, and Phil and Ryan, weather plays a huge part in these kinds of little micro productions. And we it was like the the second summer. We went up, I think it was September twenty-fifth, twenty-sixth around there. It was t-shirt and like Ryan had mentioned in the in some of the scenes there, it was t-shirt and sunscreen weather. So we were so lucky. And you know, I've done a lot of shooting where it's just it's all dark gray, the wind's happening, you can't see anything, it's just kind of a wash. Every day was a filmable, catchable day. Incredibly lucky. The thought of part two worries me that it will never have such a beautiful spread of weather like we did and timing. It, mm. We were so lucky. 
It was beautiful. That time yeah. of year last year, it was hot. It was plain hot in, in the valley bottom, so I can only imagine you guys probably reaped the rewards of that. Yeah. It, was, it was almost too nice. You yeah. know, I think we were hoping for a little more bite in the air, a little more frost on the pumpkin, to coin a phrase, um, you know, to really sort yeah. of trigger those fish into feeding aggressively. You know, they were yeah. feeding, but yeah. I, I bet a week or two later, it was probably gangbusters yeah. as they get ready for winter. Guys, um, an, interesting, an interesting trip note from the shoot is, is a whole camera's footage was lost from the shoot. So normally I shoot two GoPros, a drone, and a, an Alpha Series main camera. And I also had a, a, a full-frame Sony Handycam that was used for all of the story aspect of it. And all of the content from that camera was um, corrupt. So there is a whole section of what was shot on a day-to-day -day basis that never made the cut yeah um, unfortunately so you can just imagine if that didn't happen which we were prone to technical difficulties all the time with cards um there was a whole story from that whole trip that never made the cut imagining that how much enjoyment brent do you get personally out of editing i'm curious because I, I know that's got to be a big part of what you're doing it's that's the trickiest part um you go and you follow guys around and you get great shots, but trying to build a story really is the, say the art of it. Um, and it can be really frustrating. I built, so we were going to originally release what I had from this trip in November. Um, I had the first 15 minutes of it set up and then I had a total system crash on my Mac and, um, which scared me because a lot of that footage was, um, you know, affiliated with this complete crash. So I had to pull everything back and load it again. But the video different, um, started out on a whole different note, a whole different pace. Mm -hmm. um, so the editing part is the worst, but it, it can be, if you're on the, if you're getting the right flow going and you've got a really good audio, which was important on the last day, I told everybody like, hey, let's recap this trip on the last day at the very end so I can have some, um, background audio to build the story with and that's those scenes where you see everybody uh, talking to the camera that was shot at the very end because we all knew kind of what had happened through the trip but yeah yeah editing's the tough one it's not that bad when you're dealing with a two to five minute thing but when you're over 20 25 minutes and that much footage there was 900 plus clips yeah you really you, you can get lost in it so this one worked out great though we got a few questions, guys. Uh, well, what is everyone drinking tonight? That's uh, Phil. What do you got in the glass, sir? Just have I just have a light beer that Brent got me hooked on. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. What about what about you, Mark? That's what are you drinking? Super You're light. Like I, the group. I have a Jasper Brewing. No, I've got a I've got a glass of wine on the go here, and and a little Yeti little yeti prize in there and mark's glass keeps mysteriously filling though off screen um, <laughs> I, I want one of those glasses um it's uh we don't have any jasper brewing stuff left it was too good it it, it didn't live I mean, long. <laughs> i think that was gone on night one almost yeah pretty much trevor yeah, when we, trevor what do you got in the there when we had the neighbors come up <laughs> trevor's probably sipping on a caribou oh kyle Trevor, uh, no, uh, <laughs> you're a wine breaker. Out of drinks right now. Uh, I've already killed two beer here, so uh, okay. I was. I think I was just drinking Budweiser tonight. So. Is that where you keep going every all the time? Back to the beer fridge, Mike. <laughs> yeah, Mike well, yeah. Mike, what do you got on the go there? 
Oh, like I always do, the Coors original. Yeah, the old banquet. Now, Ryan, I know what you're uh, drinking. (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean, drinking, drinking. Little gin and juice in the little gin and juice in the Stillwater cup tonight. Um, Followed up with a little vape, actually, maybe, but um, that's about it. Good stuff, Brent. You got anything on the go? Um, Six ounces of Patron tequila, and I got to work at six a.m. Come on, (laughs) do you really? Yes, smart man. Well, it's, what is it? Wednesday? Okay. Um, guys, yeah. back to the water. Indies, deep dangling, stripping. What, on these caribou lakes that you were hitting, what was the most effective retrieve? And I know you're you're fishing three or four different bodies of water. Phil, you know, did you break out the dry line? or Walk us through that a little bit. Like, what were you throwing, Phil? Like, were you throwing... Did you start with a a, uh, a deep line, or you throw an well, indie? I think I think day one it was a lot of indie indie stuff. Um, yeah. Fish were it was a slow day on day one, and uh, and the lake we we're on is not is famous for that. It's a moody. She's a moody girl, yeah. and um, they were the fish we pumped were on teeny tiny scuds. Um, but it was just it was more if on that day as I recall it was presentation depth. People were getting them on mayfly nymphs. Ryan was getting them on, um, you know, balanced leeches in a bruised color, black and blue. Uh, Mike, you were getting. I remember you got some on a damsel. Um, so it yeah. was very. It was varied then, and then, um, and then day two was uh, indicators because we had a bit of a coronamid hatch and we did some stripping. Day three was hanging blobs at the end of the day, but I was doing pretty good in the morning. Uh, stripping uh, that stillwater nymph because the fish before the sun really got on the water they were in three or four feet in and around the lily pads um, you know chowing down on whatever they could find yeah. once the sun sort of hit the water they kind of scattered out of the shallows a bit we had to move around to find them and then day four was trying to sight fish uh, clear intermediate lines um, that kind of stuff and then you know I got my best fish off a drop off hanging a baby leech about 12 feet down off an indicator so nice. that was sort of you just kind of, as Trevor talked to, we just kind of uh, ebbed and flowed and, and went yeah. and we communicated as a group um, and played around. Somebody would do something one way and somebody would try something else the other way. That was the beauty of having a team yeah. approach to this because uh, we could figure, hopefully figure it out a little quicker. Brent, that is the beauty of, of having a group of people that are dialed in. Somebody's going to figure out, somebody's going to crack the puzzle. Somebody's going to figure it out, and, and it changes throughout the day. Speak to that. So, you know, did you notice as you're filming this, maybe Ryan to be figuring something out, and then Trevor's got something going on the other side? Well, I mean, the neat thing with a situation like this, which is quite unique, I mean, lots of guys do fish in, you know, groups of boats, but you could see, and you know what watching from a like a, a telescopic lens and watching from the air and watching from a distance you could see that how crucial fish depth was on this trip and i would say it even outweighed patterns most of the time where the first boat of the day to hook up or the first boat of the day to get a few fish you could see that they were sitting in 12 to 14 feet and everyone else was still maybe in six or eight and then when everybody would figure that out because the you know the angler competency was incredibly high on this trip and the boats would move out into that depth and then everyone would you know start to hook up more fish the depth of water angling in seemed to be the the ticket 
the whole trip and most likely for a lot of the time more than you know patterns for a lot of this was that depth of water that yeah. those boats were anchored in that were hooking up first everyone would kind of understand that without saying anything that the fish were a little deeper presentations went deeper and then uh, and that go of course goes the other way around too where the fish would move in and the boat that was the shallowest may hook up first and everybody kind of would, would see that and tune into fishing a bit shallower and, and kind of share the wealth. So yeah. it's interesting to capture something like that and observe without casting and being in, you know, panic mode that, you know, angling depth is so important. Yeah. So important. Uh, we talked about, I think we even had a bit of an acronym we were using, you know, like it would be, we're, we we seem to have boats come around us at whatever lakes that we were at, if there were other boats, they seem to get close and, you know, so we were, I think, what was it? We were saying STD minus S two. SRD, standard rainbow depth. That's what it was. SRD 12? Was it SRD 12? Yeah. So we used well, a bit of an acronym that we were using, but I think Brent hit the nail on the head. It was it was more about depth and pattern. And, hmm. you know, I think as other fishermen, we often see that anyway, right? That's no surprise to many of us. But it was really crucial this trip, for sure. And we were dialed in. Mike would get one in nine feet. The rest of us were at nine feet within seconds before he even landed the fish. What depth were you at? And we were already releasing and resetting our indicators to that. Um, it definitely was key. That mini leech you had, Ryan, seemed to really produce. I don't know if you said it's like a land and mare kind of hybrid kind of thing you were throwing. And I think you actually even did a tying demo on that. Yeah, that's... Um... A guy who's known to the page, Paul Kipe, um from Southern Alberta, he ties this uh, pine square squirrel leech, and it's um, I adapted it a little bit, you know, similar to Landon Mare's um, leech. But yeah, that thing works well. It's that pine pine tail, right? That's yeah. that's that squirrel tail. It just really, really moves and and flows nicely in the water. So yeah, that's definitely a good pattern. I think that pattern had a, a Williams Lake twist to it too, if I'm not correct. It definitely had a Williams Lake twist to it. Does that have anything? Cheesy? Is that like a skid bag effect? What I don't know. Oh, <laughs> we're back again. Well, it keeps coming up. Somebody keeps asking that question. <laughs> um, no comment. Mike, Mike, you're pretty quiet over there. Um, What's going no, no. on? So were you talk to us about the depth. Did you find the depth? I know I think it was you that got into one and took you right into the lilies on the first kind of day. Or is yeah, that... I remember that was now that, that was around nine feet at that point. Um but I mean yeah, the depth of it was all over the place. Like same thing when when Trevor was smoking them out on the chronomid there, we we'd we'd be all crowding Trevor, like what depth? How far off the bottom right? And even I remember at the end of the day on, I think it was day, was it day two? And we're all on the blobs there. We were all crowding and it was like three, four feet of water. And all of us, it was just Andy Downs for everybody over and over. Right. And it, it, yeah, it was just all over the place, really, depending on the lake. Eh? Thanks. Thanks to you, Mike. I never say indicator anymore. I just say Indy. 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 Yeah. Indy. Trevor. Just nice oh, oh, Indy down. Indy down. Yeah. Trevor, uh, Indy down. You figured out your depth on this, uh, on these lakes, like uh, with your big dragons or whatever you're throwing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're thinking about the time of day as well, right? So, you know, in the mornings, you know, you're fishing shallow, right? As things start to heat up during the day, you're moving out later. Um, you're observing the water. You're seeing what they're eating. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so it, it's, it's dynamic, right? So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, we would dial it in eventually, right? So, you know, that's, that's the beauty about indicators, right? Yeah. So you can really dial in your, your depth quite easily. Um, you know, we, mm-hmm. you, you just move it up in one foot increments, right? So yeah. it's pretty basic. Let- All of a sudden you start getting bites. I mean, you, you know, you're going to be dialed in, so. Let's let's talk about that depth. There's a question here. Uh, Phil, we'll come back up to the top to you. Setting the depth on your sonar, if it's showing you kind of where they are, are you setting the depth on your indie where you think they are, or where they are on the on the sonar? Um, hey guys, let's make sure we shut our mics off. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes it depends on the depth. You know, the, the deeper the water you're in, the bigger the cone, the more likely you're going to mark a fish. You know, I think if you're in skinnier water 10 12 feet or less it's i don't think a fish is going to tolerate you much driving over it and marking it up or if it does it's not sticking around for long um but generally i think most of us start with our indicators you know a, a foot off the bottom and work our way up if it's in a regular bottom with weeds clumps and everywhere maybe a couple feet or just over the weed tops and sort of start there but on day one um we were fishing into 18, 16, 18 feet of water and 12 feet down seem to be the magic depth. And I, you know, I've seen that a number of times. Sometimes I wonder if that's the light levels just get to where the fish kind of like that twilight condition. They feel safe and happy down there and they just sort of cruise along at that level because there's nothing really hatch wise or food wise to make them swim 12 feet down and 18 feet of water. But it just, it, it happens. I've had it happen all over North America that that's a pretty good place to start if you don't know where to start. Right, but uh, do use the sounder to uh, to certainly help things out. Yeah, won't leave the beach without it. Let's talk uh, sonar. Let's talk fish finders because I think the still water game it's it's uh, integral. Brent, what are you what are you using for a for a fish finder these days? I'm I'm lucky on my larger boat. I have a Helix Seven with um, side and down imaging and chirp, and then on my on the baby beluga squeaky <laughs> white wheel. I have, a, I have, I have a terrible boat, Mark. Let's just really. My small boat is very annoying, and it keeps people far away. And I love her. My big boat, um, a Helix Seven, but the small little twelve thirty two with very, very, very squeaky anchor rollers. Yeah. Um, I just have a portable hummingbird. I don't know the model. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ryan, what do you what do you uh, spot and fish on? Yeah, I, I use a Lawrence. I don't think it much matters the name brand. Um, really, they I use a Lawrence that's got down imaging and side imaging, and it's got a big screen that eats up a ton of lithium battery all day long. And you know, uh, but I think you know where lots of us like that down imaging is is key, and and some of that side imaging too. I've been playing around with when you're just off a shoal and you can you know, see what's going on on the shoal from where you are is, is pretty cool. Anything cruising and kind of spreading out that cone angle a little bit and getting some of that side imaging stuff. But whether it's Garmin or Hummingbird or Lawrence, um, maybe I'm just the guy looking for a sponsor, but I don't really care. I know some of these guys, I know some of these guys love the Hummingbirds because they're told to, but um, yeah, I don't think it much matters. <laughs> I saw a couple looks there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Phil, you're getting Phil met. Um Mike, what are you using for for a finder? And and I'm not looking just so you guys know. Full disclosure, I'm not looking to plug any brands. I'm just curious what you guys are are, are working out of in your in your in your John boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got just a fishing buddy Max there. 
Um, you know, it's kind of hit and miss. I don't trust the fish on it too much. Um, so I'm going to probably, I'll probably upgrade this season. If I'm looking at those helixes because after watching, you know, some of the other videos on guys and, you know, seeing fills and shit, they, they mark fish like a hot dam. Right. So, and that's, that's pretty nice when you can see them. Yeah. Um, Trevor, jam on in here. You got that cold beer. It looks like you might have made another beer run. What are, what are you uh, spotting fish yeah, on? Garmin, stri- Garmin Striker for yeah. is what, I, is what I use. That seems to be, I, I mean, I'm on still waters all the time, and that seems to be kind of a common denominator a lot of times. But um, uh, we've got some questions yeah, here, guys. For Bach, it's a great unit. Trevor, here's a question. Let's start with you um, on this one, Trev. Um, leader, fluoro, nylon, uh, what, are you, uh, what are you using for tippet? Well, I guess it depends on the pattern I'm fishing. If we're talking uh, chronomids, indicators, right? I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't use tapered leaders. I keep it pretty simple. I'm straight eight fluorocarbon, um, you know, and I'll work it down to depending on the size of the fish in the lake, you know, on average, maybe five, five and a half pound uh, tippet, right? A couple feet, feet away from a, from a swivel. Um, but if I'm, uh, you know, casting on a, on a sink or a, a slow intermediate, um, I'll usually use a mono, um, I, but I will use a, a floral carbon. It, it doesn't much matter uh, to me when I'm fishing a sinking line. But uh, right. yeah, for indicator setup, straight, straight, straight eight all the way. Straight eight floral. Any any brand you like? Straight eight floral. That's a brand. Straight eight. Uh, S A. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Tra- yeah. Or sorry, yeah. Uh, Phil. <laughs> oh, Phil's shaking his head. Yeah. He's very disappointed in me. Um. What so you're an essay guy or what do you what are you throwing for uh, for fluoro tippet? Um, let's talk crannies first off, Phil. So what have you got? What's your oh. setup look like? Um, I'm a little different. I do like a little bit of taper, just a little butt section. I use I'm a Rio boy, so um, I'm using their indicator leader. It features a uh, short two two and a half foot butt section. I think SA's got a similar leader now. Strange, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, and the reason I like that, it's got a little bit of, I position the indicator right where the, uh, the, the, uh, tapered section tapers in. Yeah. I'm watching Brent, uh, <laughs> he's not very happy. Yeah, he's doing his Dave imitation. Um, uh, so I, I position the indicator right where it transitions because the rest of the leaders level like Trevor's setup. And I like that little bit of a taper because I get a little backbone in the leader to help turn it over. And, um, that thicker diameter stuff at the at the loop, because um, I'm using a loop to loop connection, won't cut into the fly line and damage it. Yeah. But the rest of the leader is level. I think everybody agrees here. The most important part with an indicator setup is level leader from your indicator straight down, so it hangs straight down. I've had mm-hmm. um, guy, uh, you know, guiding and doing schools. I've had you know one person fishing the, that level leader setup, and another student fishing just a standard nine or twelve and adding tippet. And fishing the same fly, same depth, same everything. The two indicators are literally swung in together about three feet apart. One person isn't touching a fish and the other one's, you know, just constantly going down. Change up the leader and they're instantly in because with that tapered leader, it kind of droops off. And you could be out six inches a foot maybe. And that's when fish are eating small bugs at a set depth, they're not going to move up six inches or a foot. So it, it's probably the most complex leader setup I use on lakes. The rest of it's pretty vanilla. Yeah. Okay. Um, Brent, chime in on this. Uh, you kind of similar setup. Yeah, that's it's a super interesting conversation, and um, you, the straight eight is is kind of slang for um, 
that technique off of indicators. I, I don't know. I think I started in a different era when we would buy or use factory tapered leaders that ended in 12 or 10 pound and then affixed longer sections of straight eight and six to that. So you always had that tapering effect and turnover effect to your cast. Right. Um, I do use straight eight, the, that setup on more of the clear lakes, um, depending on water clarity is leader and water clarity is the, and fish size is a big thing for me, but I build, uh, everything. And all I have now is just three spools, um, 15, 10 and six, uh, is that seems to be about 80% of the time. So I'll run a, I have the sections of 15 on all my lines that just stay there to save the fly line. And then I alter from there, um, the lengths of the 10 and the six from that. Um, and I believe the original question was, is like, how much tippet does one use? And if you're talking about after a swivel or a tippet ring, um, I usually make sure I'm not much more than four feet from that. That, that That's me. And yeah. we, but you've, you'll notice, you know, there's so many different people all over the map with that. Is anybody in this room not fishing fluoro off the swivel? Silent. No, I think you make, a good, you make a good point, Mark. And this is, you know what? Always when it comes to tip, and it seems like, you know, I know so many guys that cheap out when it comes to the most important part. They got $1,000 fly rods. They got $700 fly reels. They got $150 fly line, and they're using Berkeley Vanish as their tippet. Let me tell you, that's an oxymoron, Berkeley Vanish, right? So I, I just, I think, I, I, I truly believe that that's where your money is best spent. Yeah, okay, so a spool of, Rio or SA Flora, you know, a guide school may cost you 30 bucks, but you know, it's the best 30 bucks you spend on that $1,500 rig that you're trying to catch the fish with. So yeah, it blows me away where people cheap out on, on the tippet material, because I feel like it's the most important part of the entire setup. Well, and that and your, that and your hooks. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you guys are talking what's in the fish's face. <laughs> it only makes sense. Yeah. Um, and someone's got a question about Seaguar. I know I use it a lot myself personally, but um, Mike, you got any thoughts on Seaguar? Um, somebody says it's a uh, go-to leader and uh, I heard they discontinued one of their products. You know anything about that? Yeah. I'm just, I'm like on the whole leader setup. I'm just like Trevor where I'm straight. Um, and as yeah, I use the Seaguar stuff exclusively for my running line there eight or ten pound floral and i got off of the uh the tapered stuff because i kept finding every time you reset your indicator you would have such a kink in your line right and then that's the thing when the fish would hit it it would just straighten it and you'd keep missing those takes right and so i just got went for straight floor with the cigar stuff and same thing swivel you know three feet of uh fluorocarbon sa tippet and you know just go from there yeah but i haven't heard nothing about discontinuing it that would suck because shit, I need a lot more now. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move over to to Trevor. Trevor, um, same question for you. What are you fishing off of your swivel? Uh and uh are you fishing floral? I assume you are. Yeah, definitely f uh, fish and floral. So, yeah, I, I have numerous SA tippets that I use there and, and various uh, uh, pound, uh, you know, three by five and a half pound is probably a pretty common one. But uh, again, depends on where I'm fishing, water yeah. clarity, how big are the fish, 
all of these types of things, but it's, it's, it's exclusively floral. I stay away from the mono, uh, you know, you're fishing longer leaders, especially when you're, you're crown amid fishing, right? So you want to stay away from that stretch. I like uh, low stretch fluorocarbon yeah. tight to the hook when you're setting the hook and uh, it disappears in the water. It's, it's, it's a lot more invisible, if you will, um, as compared to a mono. So, yeah, well said, uh, Phil, when you're coming off your swivel and you've kind of changed your chronomet or your leech pattern, whatever you're fishing under your indie a few times, at what point do you go, okay, it's getting too short? Like, will you, I, I always find this fascinating because I'm a bit lazy when I'm out there. So I might start with three feet like you guys are talking, but all of a sudden I'm, I'm still getting fish and it's like literally 12, 11, 12 inches from the swivel. Mm-hmm. Like, when do you say enough is enough? I'm going to change it. I usually like to keep the, about two feet. And I am a two to three foot. Usually if I'm shallower, I'll fish a two foot drop from the swivel. Yep. Uh, maybe a little deeper three foot uh, just because there's more water to cover. Um, but there's some situations like um, the last lake we were on, you may not use the swivel because any little flash and they don't like it, they're gone. Yep. Um, and then you just a triple surge. I use a triple surgeon's knot. So like yep. Trevor mentioned, it depends. You know, I think we're all using the fluoro for abrasion resistance. Uh, you know, it's stiffer. It, arguably sinks a little faster and um it doesn't take memory like nylon does as well Mm -hmm. um you know that's one of the ways you can find out if you got good if you got a spool of blank fluorocarbon if you if it takes a set it's usually not very good it's it's coated it's not uh sort of the pure stuff um because you can just fluorocarbon usually give it a stretch and it's right back to the way it was because it has no memory right right uh uh, we got a question here guys uh let's just rotate over to brent uh Naked crony fishing. Any times you think it's more or less effective than working indies? With, without a doubt. Um, I was just thinking of some of this actually while everyone was talking. And there's scenarios now where I have reverted back to the, more of the traditional chronomid patterns, naked fishing on those gin clear, um, waveless afternoons where some of the synthetics and some of the um, coatings are too much where more of a dull um, classic pattern yeah, with, you know, I agree a, with that. A, wing case, a wing case, a pheasant tail, and a peacock thorax start to re-benefit us in some of those situations. So I do spend some of that early spring and the late fall fishing naked, tr- more traditional um, bodied chronomids and ending in four-pound fluoro. But that's when a taper for me is super important because of the presentation and the layout where that's where straight eight will fail me because I know that I'm not laying across the water and everything's linear at that point. So that's when I'll try and stay at that about 14 length, 14 foot length and have equal increments of um, 12, 10 to six or 15, sorry, 15, 10, and six. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, we've got a uh, live chin wag going on here tonight on the movie Still Wait For It Films. Brent Gill and the gang here. We've got uh, Brent, Phil Rowley, uh, Ryan Ermit, uh, Mike Green, and Trevor Tatarchuk, some of the, the biggest names in fly fishing today. And guys, I got to say, your still waters. You, Brent's moving back there. He's not buying what I'm saying. Your your Stillwater's Facebook page, I just want to say thanks on behalf of everybody that's on there because it's such a welcoming site. Um, there's no negativity. If it is, you guys nip it. I know Wes, I know Ryan, I know, I know Brent. You guys nip that right in the bud. And uh, kudos to you because I think you've really created something special here. I really do. 
So let's get into uh, where do we want to go? How are you guys for time? Or anybody? Know? Oh, we got a question here. Let's. Phil's good. Well, I, well. So Phil and Ryan are an hour ahead. So uh, what do we got here? So do you check water temperatures on top, bottom, or mid water, and choose your fishing technique accordingly? Oh, that's an interesting question. Or Phil's nodding. Or it's all about the hatch. Phil, why don't you chime in? Uh, to me, water temperature is probably the one of arguably the most critical thing at times because it will, you know, it affects trout are cold blooded, so it affects their metabolism, their activity levels, how long they feed, how long it takes them to digest, um, those kind of things. Um, it affects insect hatches. Uh, insect hatches are very water dependent. Um, you know, and I do take, you know, I've got the sounder um, with me that's got the surface temperature, but I also have a a cheap thermometer on a, on a cord that I'll lower down, you know, like, uh, the last lake we were on, that would be a lake with a steep drop off where, you know, the shallows are warm, but you can plumb down the slope and find, you know, what I like water temperature. I'm old school Fahrenheit, 50 to 60 Fahrenheit, uh, 50 to 65 is probably trout happy zone, if you will, where they're going to be active and feeding. You're going to have bugs moving. Um, those kind of thing. It, to me, it, it's critical. It's the first if somebody gives me a fishing report and they didn't give me a temperature, I'm kind of, I think they missed a lot of key things. And it, it, as I mentioned there, it also governs your retrieves, right? Because if you, if the water is really cold, like early spring, right after ice off, geez, mm-hmm. that water temperature could be, what, 34, 36 Fahrenheit. It's still really cold. Those fish aren't moving very much. So it's static, uber slow retrieves, um, those kind of things. So it, it, it it's such a, a critical piece for me. Mm. It's Probably number that and depth, two most number one things. Well, Trevor's gone for a beer again. There he goes. I, I don't know. Like maybe I'm missing out here. When you just said lower, I've never thought of lowering a thermometer to the bottom of the lake. I guess you just got to, yeah. as long as you pull it up quickly. I guess it's not going to yeah. change that quickly. Pull it up quickly. Um, avoid electric motors. Um, right. And don't get an expensive one because I step on them from time to time, and you got little bits of mercury rolling around. Of course, I came from an era where mercury was a toy. So, uh, you know, uh, nothing, nothing really happened, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so don't, I, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on it, but critical. Yeah. And you can buy a, uh, go to Cabela's, you can get a thing called a depth therm and it'll actually, it's, it's got a pressure chamber in it that lets water in it. It's about 10 bucks. Um, and, um, you can also use it to tell depth if you don't have a sounder or, or hmm. something like that. So yeah, there's lots of toys out there. Trevor's back. He's got a new beer. No, oh, man. <laughs> It's got 56k modem you're running there in uh, in, uh, he's got his TRS 80. Yeah, PG internet. Mike's got good package. Yeah, well, Trevor just got a new Atari. I just just got the new fiber optic, new modem, new new wireless router. Apparently, what the hell is that? (laughs) Yeah, it's that Atari you're running. Mike's in the city. I think Trevor's probably in the back 40. In the background, Trevor. What's that? Right. What, you must be downloading something in the background. And it's yeah. But, I have no idea what's going on. So I don't know. I've had still on repeat since I launched it just to drive the views to the roof. So, <laughs> <laughs> so wow. Um, what else can we talk about, guys? I, figure, I feel like we covered a lot of ground tonight. We've got another question. Um, Trevor, your fly patterns are incredible. And you know what? kudos man i uh when i the, when i first saw your chronomid patterns i was like what is this guy doing um where do you get your inspiration when it comes to your crony patterns 
Yeah. Oh, boy. Coors Light. <laughs> oh, boy. I, you know, I, I, geez, I don't know. I mean, if it's up to individuals, I mean, geez, one of them is sitting right here. You know, I grew up watching the likes of, you know, the Phil Rollies, the Bill, uh, Brian Shams, you know, even the Freshy Boys. I mean, this is these, these are the guys that were, yeah. you know, on TV doing the videos, showing, showing how to tie these things, right? So, I mean, that's obviously where it started. And then just just the internet, you know, you get on there and you start joining some of these pages. It's just incredible the talent that's out there. And I, I, I couldn't just name one individual. There's just so much talent out there and yeah. so much inspiration. So, you, and, uh, you know, what I love about that, Trev, is is as somebody that has a podcast, I never run out of material because yeah, Joe around the corner or Cindy up the street is tying these flies. I'm like, what in the world are they doing? And that's a cool thing right. about it now. Like when we all started this, it was like you had to go to a library or pull out a book. It's right. hard to get information. Now you just YouTube it and, you know, like killer crony patterns or bobber down or bcflyguys.net or any of these places, you can get amazing information. Yeah, I just got to take exception to that. I grew up watching yeah. guys like, what are you in your, you yeah. were still in diapers when I was tired? Like, yeah, yeah. Hey, Absolutely. I'm getting my vacation. This is the Mom, only time being old Mom, work. Can we watch I'm getting... Rolly after school? <laughs> Magic school bus. Um, I'm the good thing about being old is I'm getting vaccinated first. So, well, good point. <laughs> right. Touche. Yeah. We've all been watching Phil since the days he had hair. Right. Wow. Just yeah. always learning. <laughs> <laughs> My work is done here. Okay. Good night, hold everyone. On, Phil, hold on. Before you go, <laughs> I I want to know if we're going to see Dave tonight. We're going to see Dave tonight? <laughs> no comment. We don't want to go that deep yet. Maybe, wow. maybe <sighs> round two. Maybe I round thought two. I saw Dave behind you, Brent. Yeah, you, there is a mirror back there. Okay. All right. I'll leave that alone. Um, so what else can we talk about this? Trip? Most important question is what Kyle, what's Kyle doing tonight? I think yeah. Kyle, you know, so I think what Kyle meet who's Kyle. I think Mike no. should describe what happened to, with the tenant below the Airbnb. No, no, that's yes. Brent, Brent the first. No, that's on, Brent. You, you wouldn't talk skid bag. So now you're going to talk about that. The whole neighborhood knew we were there during this shoot. That, no, it was funny because we were, what was the night? What, what the hell were we cooking or doing something? And Ryan was blasting his biggie or he had something going on, you know, some sort of rap or hip hop going on. And it was pounding, something smoking <laughs> on the oven. Fire alarm was wailing off in the house, smoke flying out, out the door. And then I guess that the, we didn't know at the time there was a downstairs tenant and his girlfriend come up and he's sitting in the coat and he's in his boxers and he's like, what's going on, man? And and oh, I don't know. It, it, it was funny. And then, yeah. Guys, then I the next, asked us that the next day he told us he was on the search <laughs> curb and he wanted us to help move his goddamn dresser. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I am picturing this poor B&B in Williams Lake and there's drones flying around it and fully oh, lit know. up and people are running around with cameras and all these boats coming in and out of the oh. back. Jesus. Wow. Yeah, I know, I, honestly, I completely forget his real name. So he came, he's going by Kyle. Yeah. Kyle Cunningham. Yeah. Cunningham? Yes. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan had to negotiate a little bit with the, uh, with the, uh, B and B. It was. <laughs> thank God for so, Ryan's great negotiating skills. Well, we may have. I, I was in the truck, and he was. 
holy smokes, he could he could sell ice cubes to people in the north. Like <laughs> we may have broke the fence. We may have broke the fence. We may have kept up attendance. We fixed the fence. We fixed that fence. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. Absolutely. <laughs> Hold on, guys. We gotta dig into this here. Who was backing up the boat? Hey, there's only one on a trailer. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's right the Marlin. Here. That's the Marlin with the fancy right. uh, wrap. Well, I do believe we had complaints from um, north, south, west, and east on our week stay. So All you guys, the houses around that place weren't having it because it was midweek, and you know. So region three is out next time. Yeah, <laughs> keep getting pushed further north. Banned from the region. Well, I think we'll face ourselves out of your house, Mark. Well, that uh, come on down. It's all good. <laughs> you heard it, boys. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. You heard it, boys. I got the wine. As long as you guys bring the fly patterns, and and Dave. Um. <laughs> All right. Um, what else can we talk about on this trip? Is it? Here, got another question. Somebody is. I have a feeling that's my buddy Sheffy chiming in here. When is the best time after ice off? Wait a couple of weeks or what? Um, let's start with Brent. You're out there well, when the ice is still on with your drone. So. Well, everybody. I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough. I get to work and work around premiums to the waters. I live across the street from one. I watch them all the time, but. Definitely, it's not what it's all worked up to be right after ice off. Fish are really lethargic. They are shallow for a bit, but they're also susceptible to predation. And the water temps are, you know, very, very, very low. It, from in my experience, and Phil probably agree, and Mike and Ryan and Trevor, is it really starts to happen after turnover, if yeah. if there's a turnover, when the water stratifies correctly and the, and things start to warm up on the surface, but. Really, that get-go right after ice off is more celebratory than anything else. The fish are yeah. very lethargic. You know? oh. It takes a bit to get going, depending on the lake, that is. I totally agree. Uh, Ryan, chime in on this. Like, you know, we, we all, we're all chomping at the bit to get out, right? You see all these posts on Stillwaters and other apps, and, and it's like, let's get out there. It's going to be happening. Chronomids are going to be peeling off. And the reality is the water's still 30 three degrees because the ice came off yesterday no bugs are flying and what do you end up throwing then i think you know and i'm quite fortunate that i think elevation plays a key role like anything else and i'm quite fortunate that i fish from really high elevation mountain lakes where on the hottest water temperatures you're talking 50 degrees so I mean, we are breaking ice at our first opportunity to get out on those lakes because those fish live in glacier-fed water all year long. So they are less lethargic than, say, maybe at 3,000 feet or yeah. 2,500 feet. I mean, I'm talking 5,500, 6,000 feet. So I think it plays a role, too, as to what lakes we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, in those glacier-fed lakes that I love to fish, we're, <laughs> we're breaking ice to get out there. Um, and we're fishing suggestive patterns, minnow patterns, leech patterns, those kind of things, because like you say, we're not seeing a whole lot of hatches. But Brent's completely right, I think, at those lower elevation lakes where it's just too cold for them, and that's not what they're used to yet. And, and turnover is key, and those higher elevation big bodies of water that I'm talking about, they don't ever turn over. Mm -hmm. So they don't ever have that stratification or that equaling or settling out stage either. So hmm. elevation plays a role as well. Yeah, that's uh, 
Mike, uh, why don't you chime in on that? I mean, I know a lot of us, you know, we're talking about early season stillwater fishing. You're jumping out there. You're all excited to get out. Not a lot happening. Um, how do you start approaching the lake right after ice off? No, I agree with the boys. It's the same thing. You're super excited, but, you know, once ice off comes, I, me personally, I've never slayed them. Come ice off, it's, you know, you get a couple fish here and there. Um, but you can see hatches before turnover, hatches even after turnover, like normal. Mm-hmm. But typically, I know it's, you're waiting for that turnover. That's when the real excitement starts. Um, but, you know, first ice off, same thing. I'm, I'm hucking leeches and, you know, blobs, booby scuds, right? Going shallow. Yeah. You guys yeah. Have, have any experience with this? Like, so you're out there, you're anticipating, you know, some of the first bugs off are going to be chronomids, but in reality, small leeches seem to kind of light it up early or shrimp in shallow. Phil, what's your tactic for when that ice first peels off? Well, as guys talk to, it, it can be hit and miss. Um, it's often really localized. Um, you know, you got to remember, it's not only cold, but those fish have had a cap of ice over them and it's been dark and all of a sudden the lights are on. So, you know, there's a little period of adjustment for just new conditions. Um, you know, we tend to, you know, I've, I've actually had some really good ice off days before turnover. Fish are concentrated in, but it, it might only be one bay. It's often like a North Bay mm-hmm. that's getting the sun, muddy bottom that's going to warm. And it's not going to turn into 70 degree temperature, but everywhere else on the lake could be 33 Fahrenheit, 34, just come out that is 35 or 36 and that one or two degree is just and but it's slow it's micro leeches they always seem to eat a black and red coronament at that time it's i think fish have they've been in the, the lake a few years it's just they know that that's food they eat so many of them yeah. um blobs will work sometimes but you do get i remember one year being on the ranch with brent and super warm one day and we had boatmen and back swimmers starting to go um, because not they're not only a fall thing. A lot of species reach maturity and can take flight in the spring, and you can actually get you know late afternoon or early afternoon when it's at the warmest, you can get some boatman activity. But it's mostly hanging micro leeches and just don't even touch them, right? And the takes are slow, yeah. not hard pull down. Sometimes it's just a little slide left, slide right. The indicator goes half down or even rises up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So fish takes it on the way up, and it's. But it's it's localized stuff, and then once it mixes, water temperature gets above fifty. That's sort of a magic temperature range we use. That usually gets the bugs going, and the fish can water chemistry. They can distribute uh, over a greater area of the lake and, and really get firing. So, something I think we don't talk a lot about, and I know thinking about you know the the people on the Stillwaters Facebook page are they're pretty dialed in, right? Uh, I, for me, when you're chasing, say you're chasing hatches, guys, and you're looking for those first chronomid hatches. Talk to me about how important it is with that elevation change when you're like, okay, I know this is happening in the valley bottom right now. You know, chronomids are popping. But three weeks from now, you might want to go up another 1,000 feet. Do you find that, Brent, you're a great guy to ask this question because you've got different lakes at different elevations. Is that your experience? Do you find with the lakes on the ranch you can kind of chase hatches? I was just keying my mic in there. Um yeah, but you know, it's so weird. Every lake's different and water clarity affects temperature too. How far those lights can penetrate, how far the rays can penetrate through different bodies of water. 
but yeah, it does happen. And it's almost a calendar by the week, sometimes with, um, you know, the hatch, the, the famous book hatch chart, you know, the higher you go, the later it is. Right. But um, water for me, I just seem to key in a lot more lately on water clarity and how that affects uh, there's natural springs inflows and inlets and outlets. But, um, you know, some of those higher that are dark tea colored can react completely different than a lower elevation lake that's gin clear. So yeah. it's, that's why this is so damn interesting is, is that the, the book would be, you know, this thick and, you know, Phil would have written probably each little chapter over he's, the last three decades, but there's so it, much. Well, he's he's, sorry, he's got a so new one coming. On all the, <laughs> the chapters are really, there's so much going on and there's so many different factors that but, play with this. Um, the one that was really interesting to me is, is a couple of lakes that we fish here is, is how they lay in concerns to the mountain. And one in particular is sitting at 4,000 feet, but the sun only goes over the top of the, both mountain peaks this way. It doesn't set, set this way. That lake is always cold Yep, and it has hatches throughout the entire season. Hmm. Where another one that's only a few hundred feet below it is look, looks like this, and it warms up in almost doldrums, which I hate the word. It gets really tricky very quickly. So there's yeah. so many factors that keep this interesting. By some of the companies, you know, use the word scientific. So if you guys have any questions tonight, we're going to keep this going for a bit longer. If you've got questions for these guys, uh, we're talking about the film still, wait for it, films uh, released. What, what did it come out, Brent, maybe a month ago or so? Or how far uh, back was that? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. But Jan Early January, I think. Yeah. Yeah, early if, January. If you really want to get the bug to go still water fishing, check it out on YouTube under Wait For It Films. S T I double L. We got Brent Gill, we got Phil Rowley, we got Ryan Ermit, we've got Mike Green and Trevor Tatarchuk. Uh, guys, I'm curious on this trip, give me a takeaway. So if you had to think about this trip, Ryan, what was your takeaway on this as far as you gonna do it again? You wanna do it again? Um dial me in. Yeah, so um this trip for me will be one that I'll never forget. Um, I've been stillwater fly fishing for close to 40 years, and I don't know that I've ever been on a better trip. I mean, for me personally, um, I went through a separation a week before we left on this fly fishing trip. Wow. And, and to, be, to be with some of my best friends and like-minded folks, tracing big rainbows and, you know, living our passion and doing it together and uh, the laughs. And um, I, I said it on your podcast, you know, before, but, you know, this, this, this still water fishing, fly fishing game that we're in is way more for me than that dancing silver rainbow at the end of my fly line. Mm. It's about the camaraderie. It's about the friendship. Yeah. It's about the knowledge that's obtained and it's, it's about being there with my buddies. And um, I've always really loved that about Brent's films. I remember Brent and I talking years ago that my favorite ones that he does are those ones where I feel like it's just the boys and I'm coming along for the ride. And, and I think Brent captured that and, and being with the boys and being with this crew, um, it's something I'll never forget, you know. Yeah. You, you know what? You verbalized that so well, and that's that's why I started with you. <laughs> that's good stuff, man. Uh, Mike, takeaway on this trip, man. What uh, Throw it out there. 
Right, Ryan, yeah, you hit the nail on the on the head there. Like I it's God, but I'd probably go it's probably my best trip I've been on, top for sure. It was just because you don't get a lot of opportunities to go with, you know, a group like this. Um, and you know, let alone like, a group of guys that all share the same passion, right? And we all rolled in and we clicked like like nothing. So that was a big bonus too. Um I don't know. You can't put it into words. It was just so much fun. Yeah. You know, it was so good. I think, too, something we don't talk about a lot is we have to get out there. I think as fly fishers, as people that are passionate about this, it's not like you have a choice at some point. Trevor, what's your takeaway on this uh, on this trip and this filming of uh, Still? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's so many for me. But, you know, one that sticks out is uh, is just how similar we all are at the end of the day, you know, it was, it was really interesting. I recall, you know, conversation with Mike as we were setting up the trip and, you know, we've never been fishing with Phil or Brent or Ryan is geez, what are the guys like? Are we going to get along? What is, you know, what is everybody like? And just how well we clicked and how on the same page we are about damn near everything. Like it's, it's absolutely incredible how well we meshed. Um, so it was just, it was a really unique experience for me from that perspective. Um, just to, you know, you link up five guys, get together and all of a sudden you all just click like that. I mean, how often does that happen? Right. So I don't know. It was, that was a pretty big takeaway for for me. So, yeah. What about you, Phil? What was your takeaway? Cause Uh, you, you fished a lot of places with a lot of different people. Talk to me about yeah, this one. Yeah, I've been I've been fortunate to that. You know, I wish there was somebody more my age there, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, we. Thirty-eight. Uh, I think the neighbor was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, was. yeah, yeah. We both. Uh, yeah, thanks, Brent. Um, <laughs> no, it's what everybody said. It's just, it's not about the fish. It's about the experience. It's about the people you're with. Um, you know, chance to sort of unwind cleanse your mind you know think about things put life in in proper perspective at times especially with the year we've just had um those kind of things but no everybody's like-minded we the first night there we just hit it off it was late uh we we all wanted to get out there early and we didn't (laughs) i think we ended up picking a lake one of the lakes on the shorter drive because we just had so much fun and clicked and got along the evenings to me were the most fun part just catching up, you know, um, sharing our excitement of what we saw and did that day and then talking about the anticipation of the next day and just telling stories, right? Mm. The stories that come on these trips are hilarious. And, and the things that go on, the, the neighbor next door, the neighbor downstairs, the, you know, the charcoal pizza. Um, <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, that's well said, Phil. I think that's something, too, that as as, as a group, we don't talk about enough. It's not just the catching the fish, being on the water. It's what you're doing when you're not in your waders. It's the sitting around, playing cards, having a cold one, talking with your buddies. The drive to the to the lake, like for me, that's key. Brent, what what was your takeaway from this from this trip? Geez, nobody even left me anything to say here. But <laughs> honestly, the the coolest thing for me was realizing each morning grabbing freshly charged batteries and backed up SD cards is that I'm sitting with five or four, let's say four of some of the best fly innovative fly tires and anglers out there. 
and hitting some of the best waters that we know that we handpicked out of a hat, how can this go wrong? Um, hmm. And everything, of course, is going to look good from the other side. You've got that much talent and um, know-how put together on some of these premium lakes. I just what I took away from it was anything I film after that's going to be really difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, you guys set the bar pretty high. It looked like you had an amazing, epic journey. Uh, anything we missed tonight? It looks like we're kind of out of questions. If, um, and we've been on here a couple hours now. Phil, I understand you've got a new book. We've got to we've got to plug something for Phil here. Oh yeah, got to do that. Yep. You know, I'm old. I'm you know, I got to retire at some point. I know you and I just chatted, Phil, on a podcast coming up soon because you got a new book coming out with Orvis, specifically Stillwaters. Maybe tell us about that real quick. Yeah, it's called the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Fly Fishing. Um, it's been working on it for three years. Um, it's due out May the 1st. Um, you know, Brent was teasing me about writing tomes. Um, the publisher had it in his mind to be about 80,000 words, and it's over 110,000 words and close to 300 images and diagrams and stuff, and I could have put more in it, right? I, I think about it every night. Ah, could have. So I apologize if there's gaps or a picture you would have liked to have seen or something, uh, maybe volume two. But uh, it's available for pre-order now on uh, mine and Brian's uh, Stillwater Fly Fishing Store, stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. So you can pre-order it there. And every book that, uh, like all our books we've got on there, Brian's books too, they're all autographed. So yeah. if that uh, adds value, um, yeah, come on over and get your name on the list, and I'll get it out to you as soon as it gets there. Good stuff. Well, guys, I'm, I'm honored. This, this, Go ahead. I think this book is going to turn out to be the Bible of stillwater fly fishing. I've I've had a you know a couple of glimpses of some of the chapters, and um, you know I'm just as excited about this book as I was the Stillwater app when it came out. Uh, this is going to be known as the Bible of stillwater fly fishing. I totally believe that this is going to be a must-have. Yeah, we're Here looking. Here we go, Ryan. Here we go, U.S. Look... <laughs> a one. one ski. That's a, a one ski, but it's worth about twenty-five Canadian. One so. twenty-five ski. It's a, it's a buck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Buck in the corner. Hey, Mark. Yeah. Hey, hey. While I'm while I'm plugging stuff here, I, I want to take it back to our sponsors. Yeah. yeah. And before we end this, I want I want to you know shout out to. Chinook wind, Susan at Chinook wind, the material she supplied for us to be able to tie while we were there, the financial contributions, um, Canadian Lama, the same thing, the material and the financial contributions, fish in BC for the accommodations and stepping up for us, just absolutely huge. And, mm -hmm. you know, some of those laughs and some of that banter wouldn't have been the same if it wasn't for those beers from the boys at the Jasper <laughs> Brewing Company. So, um, uh, you know, as as much as it all was, and the talent that was there, and the, the filmography and everything, it wouldn't have happened without the sponsors. And it's key that um, they get the props that they deserve. So I just, you know, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're getting shots here, Phil. I think. Uh, well done, Mark, <laughs> Brent, Ryan, Mark, Trevor. Yeah, I feel. <laughs> like the, does. Yeah, I feel like the Canucks goalie right now. I, uh, <laughs> He's on fire right now. Oh, yeah. That's to get him moving. You know, Mike's going to take offense to that. When I talked to Mike, he said, you can only interview me if the Canucks don't play. Hey, well, okay, hey. Pretty yeah, much. You should be safe any day of the week right now. <laughs> Ooh, they're on a streak. They're, they're, they're playing right now, what actually. It, what's the score? Yeah. Are they winning? Huh? What's the score? Uh, you'll have to check yourself. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. 
All right. I just want to pipe in and uh, say thanks uh, thanks to Mark for putting this together. Thank you, Mark. Hosting this. It's not easy to do. Mark's incredibly well rehearsed from the you know amazing podcast at Fly Fishing ninety seven. And how else can you navigate through five guys that want to talk over top of each other? And thanks again for putting (laughs) it together and leading the show here, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mark. my pleasure, guys. Thanks for asking me, and and uh, I love what all you guys are doing. And I, I hope we I hope to get you all on the podcast again in the future, and more of your people off of uh, the Stillwaters Facebook page. Keep up the good work. Um, again, we're gonna probably time out here, but we're gonna say um, thanks to the sponsors of this film still uh fishing bc Jasper Brewing Company, Canadian Lama, Chinook Wind Outfitters. Look them up. Support them. Thanks, boys. Appreciate it. Peace out, and we'll uh, look for part two. Absolutely. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Could happen. Good Take night. care, everyone. Cheers, Good guys. Night, Good night. Take See care, guys. everyone. Cheers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.